close, we are kicking off a new series. And today, let me just tell you, let me give you like the emotional flow of today's sermon. I'm like popping. How about that? That's pretty cool, right? But it's just going to be like this wild, wacky EKG chart. And just when you want it to like button up and get really tidy, it won't. I'm just going to tell you that. And oh, by the way, it's going to look at why we live in such a a world of turmoil right now. And it's going to all come to the source of this passage we're in right now. It's going to go right to the heart of what many of us are dealing with, what many of us might need to look at, and uh, why so many things are blowing up in our world. You game? All right, so let's jump in the first book of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 16, and here's how it starts. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. By the way, their names used to be Sarai and Abram, were just, and, and their names changed because God changes it. It's a beautiful story. We don't have time for it, but we're just inserting their ultimate names, Sarah and Abraham. So uh, she had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to her husband, Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham says, okay. He agrees. He agrees. And in this moment, we see God's redemptive plan at work in the midst of so much pain and carnage. Here's what I love about the Bible and hate about the Bible is that it's messy, it's raw, it's gritty, it's not tidy, and it's mysterious. It chronicles its own time, the time in which it was written and the time in which it's recording. It mirrors back to you and me our own kind of lives. And at the same time, it's telling this forever story of God's redemptive movement and plan. In other words, that God has not given up on all that he's created. And it also just shows how jacked up things can be in our world. Now, just to frame in what's going on in this moment, let me tell you what that redemptive plan from start to finish for God is. And we're going to go quickly through it, but if there were just a few, five or six chapters for the whole Bible, it would go through this kind of narrative. It starts with God from out of nothing calls out something beautiful, he, all, and it's called creation, that he goes, look, all that I've made, stars, moon, ocean, human beings, good and very good, and that's called the creation stage. But then, uh, upon our own volition, we turn from God, rebel, and throw one another under the bus. That's called the fall. But God says, I'm not done. I I still have this beautiful, purposeful dream in my heart, so I am going to go in pursuit of redeeming all that's been lost. I'm going to do it through this man named Abraham. And I'm going to tell Abraham that it's going to be through you and your kid and your kid's kid and your kid's 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 kids and all the, all the descendants. They'll, be, they'll outnumber the stars in the sky. You'll have tribes. You'll become a people. You'll become a nation called Israel. And it's going to be through Israel, not just that you're going to be chosen, Abraham and your people, but it's going to be through you, God says. Look at this with me. It's going to be through you that all peoples on earth will be blessed. God's redemptive plan going, God being in his very being and core heart, relational, he goes, how will I do this? I'm gonna do it through relationship, through a person named Abraham. And so through Abraham and his line come the prophets, come King David, and it's through David's line that comes this baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, who's from Nazareth, 
who models for us what we believe about Jesus, that he's fully God, but he also shows us how to be fully human, the way that he lived, the way that he walked, the way that he breathed, the way that he did relationship, and, it, and, and the story as it unfolds to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension. We call that the Easter season, and that's what we're celebrating, that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection took on all of our sins, all of our penalties, and it's in him that we find forgiveness. It's in him that we find new life, but we still today experience brokenness, right? But Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna send up into the, into the heavenly realm, but I'm gonna give you my spirit. And so we enter into this moment where all the followers of Jesus who are now watching him ascend into the sky, they are now empowered by his Holy Spirit, and that's called the church. And that's the season in which you and I live in right now, the season of God's amazing breakthrough at the cross, but we still live in the midst of this brokenness where we're saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven invade my life, invade my world, and why is there so much pain? Why is there so much calamity? And yet, that's because one day Jesus will return, literally and physically, to make all things new, where there'll be, the scriptures say, no more suffering, no more pain, not even any more death, and that's the moment that we await. We just call it the kingdom when he comes and restores all things. There's the storyline. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, kingdom. That's the story the Bible tells. That's God's redemptive plan for all creation, all that he called good and very good in the very beginning. He says, I will make good on it again. Now, why do we tell this story for this, for this Sunday? Well, because it's right there where it says Israel, that all the promises and purposes of God are resting on Abraham and his wife Sarah, all the promises of God are sitting in her barren womb. Could you imagine the pressure? She's in her 80s. All these promises have been given to her husband, relayed to her. She has her own backstory of pain we don't have time to go into, but she herself feels isolated. She feels alone for anyone that has suffered through infertility like my wife and I. Oh man, the desperation. What used to be for intimacy now becomes this calculated necessity. The charts, the planning, the medication, the clomid, the innocent, curious questions of when are you going to have kids? For us, for Lisa and me, it was only like a year and a half but felt like it was forever. And we carried this invisible grief. You know, this, this like what we couldn't show, like there, there, there was loss, but it wasn't loss that was tangible. Even when we had a miscarriage, there was loss, but it, but it couldn't be shown for, and, and people would just, in, in all the well-intending ways, but it would just be so painful, they'd say, well, just try again, you know? I'll never forget the time that, uh, Elise and I were at a church and we went to go take communion and we were just like in the bowels of our suffering. And I remember this, this young couple, they had just had their first child and, and the wife was holding the baby in her arms and as we're walking to the communion table, it's almost, she just like steps into our path and holds the baby up high, like at eye level to Elise and says, we can't wait for you to have one of these. And I just remember, like, I was behind Elise, and I just, like, with a firm 
You know, I just, just pushed her like through. I just didn't even want her to have to respond or give eye contact. And we just went to the bread and to the cup. So painful. So isolating. And you experience pain differently. I experienced different than my wife experienced. And we didn't know how, oftentimes how to meet each other in the midst of that pain because we were dealing with it differently. And while we had the hope of children, we didn't have the promise of God for all creation. And so you can imagine Sarah sitting there and in her desperation saying, I have to do something. My worth, my value, my identity, everything she felt was riding on this moment. And that's why she says to her husband, take my servant Hagar. And you just see this kind of like desperate hope. Like just, I just want this one line to pop where, where she says, perhaps I can build a family through her. Through her, through this woman named Hagar. Hagar means stranger. It means wanderer. She was probably assigned to Abraham and Sarah's family when they went through Egypt. And there was this messy exchange we won't go into. But Abraham was given cattle, camel, and servants. And it's more than likely that Hagar was attached to their family, kind of more in the form of an indentured servant in that moment. And so now she's in a land she doesn't know. She's been wrested away from her own family. She, like Sarah, has no control over so much of her life and now she's being forced into subjugation. She's being forced um, to, to marry Abraham is what happens and to bear the child that she knows will not be her own. So much pain. There's so much hurt in this place. I can understand Sarah. I can understand Hagar. And then it seems without much effort, Hagar gets pregnant. Let's read this passage. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, when Sarah knew that Hagar was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. I mean, can you just imagine what was going on between those two hurting women? I mean, the space in between them. I mean, all the years of infertility and pain in Sarah, and even though it's her idea, now she's looking at her maidservant, whose body is involuntarily due all that you do when you're pregnant in terms of nurture, all the resources of our body, and even externally, the caressing of the tummy and of the womb. You can just imagine the pain for one woman. Her name will be on that child's birth certificate. For the other, once that child is weaned, she'll probably never see it again. So much pain in that moment. And so many of us in this room know this pain. If you're struggling with infertility, if you've been in that place of infertility, 
The worst place you could be is at a park on Saturday on a beautiful spring afternoon like yesterday with all the strollers going by. The worst place you could ever get invited to is a baby shower of even if it's your best friend. Friendships, sisterhoods, all sorts of things just get destroyed in the moment when one person has, when one woman has a pregnancy and a child and the other doesn't. And it's painful for both. For someone having that child, it's like, why can't you just celebrate with me? I get that you're in pain, but why can't you come to my baby shower? Why can't you celebrate? Why can't you just be happy for me? And if you're in that place of infertility, you just, no, you don't get it. How could you possibly get it? It takes such a work of Jesus in a friendship like that, between two sisters like that, to turn to one another and just offer where you are, not where you're not. To say, I don't even know if I can explain this to you. I love you. I celebrate with you. And a part of me just is crushed inside. And so you ask for grace. You ask for forgiveness. You ask God to redeem that space. You offer yourself to the limit that you can, but maybe you need some boundaries to where you can't step any further in that relationship. Does that make sense? But in the midst of that pain, you don't, you don't ever say, this is where I will always be. Because that leads to feeling like a victim that, feels, that leads to being embittered. That leads to, leads to just pushing yourself further and further away to, into isolation. God doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want you to stay there. Because what goes unredeemed will then get transferred and it will spill out all sorts of places. What goes unredeemed will spill over into a myriad of other relationships. And that's what happened in this passage. Look with me here how it continues. Sarah begins to despise her mistress and so she turns to Abraham. And let's just, let's jump on a little bit here to the next slide, next few slides if we can. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Interesting, huh? See some blame happening? Whose idea was it? Sarah, right? So now we understand her pain. We understand her hurt, but hurt people hurt people. If you knew the whole story of Sarah, she didn't, as best we can tell, she didn't have a choice in leaving her, her country and going on this journey with Abraham. She didn't have a choice. This is the part I've been trying to avoid telling you, but she didn't have a choice when Abraham said, hey, we're going through Egypt and the Pharaoh might find you attractive, so let's call you my sister. So that, um, and then if he wants you in, in his court as his wife, let's just say yes so that he doesn't kill me to keep you. And so she's forced into marriage with the Pharaoh until the Pharaoh finds out Abraham's cowardice and his deceit. She didn't have a choice in that. She had no control, presumably, over to leave her country, no control over her own marriage, and no control over her own womb. And so she took matters in her own hands. How many of us have done that in our lives? And then when it doesn't go well, 
And when you're not well in your heart, you blame others. And so what happens here, she turns to her husband, she blames him for the wrong she's suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now look at this moment for Abraham. So men, pay some attention here. Like men, this would be the time to start listening. I'm kidding. Kind of. Here, look at Abraham's response. Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Had an opportunity with, um, with about, I don't know, 50 or 60 Heartland dudes at a bonfire Friday night, and we, we looked at this moment, at the passivity of Abraham. You know where that traces all the way back to? We all have it. We all, what we talked about is having passivity blind spots. Like we could be like so awesomely proactive and aggressive and getting it after here, there, and there. But we all have these little categories in our life where, we're just, where we just soon not deal with it. Where we don't bring our great strength into this place, right? And I just, just see so much passivity in the midst of all of Abraham's greatness, right? He's one of the great heroes of our faith, but he's so dang human, isn't he? He's so dang human. Like, we don't see him, and I just want to say to Abraham, like, Abraham, engage with your wife. Lean in with her in her infertility. She's bearing this all along. Join with her in this place. When he's going through Egypt, I want to say, Abraham, man up. Because he literally is like, he literally gets cattle and camel and all this, this wealth in exchange for his wife that he feigned as his sister. I'm like, dude. And when his hurting wife comes to him and tries to hatch this plan B, why didn't he bring his great strength into this place? Look, this is not an issue of like strong women, like, like, like women shouldn't be as strong and take initiative. Like, no, the issue is passive men. That's the issue. And his great strength, whatever God had equipped him with in that moment to come alongside his wife and engage and enter in, he failed to do so. And now he's got this complete civil war going on in his home between uh, his wife and maidservant. And he had another opportunity to lean in, to join his wife, and to protect somebody under his household of care. And he refused to do it. He washed his hands of it. Men, men, we all have these blind spots of passivity where your great strength is needed. Whatever that is, whatever the strength that God has given you something to offer in these moments, lean in, step up. And maybe it's your protective spirit. Maybe it's your wisdom. Maybe it's your humor. Maybe it's your compassion. Maybe it's your, I don't know what it is that God has given you, but would you see it and would you lean into it? Because if we don't, the chaos just gets worse. And that's what happened for Abraham to the point where his heir is in the womb of his maidservant. And look with me here, she flees. Last two lines, then Sarah mistreated Hagar. Do you know what the word for that is? Abused. And we see that oftentimes, that vicious cycle. The most powerless feeling are the ones who bully. 
Those who feel like they have the least control are the ones who try to take control. Hurt people hurt people. She has, Sarah does, her own abuse in her background. And it's gone unredeemed. And here it's leading to the very, what they believe is now the promise of God, the heir of Abraham in the womb of the maidservant. And now she flees. And she heads back to Egypt where she's no longer a stranger, one would presume, where she no longer has to wander. And she's out in the middle of a desert by herself. She is pregnant and there are no urgent cares. There are no convenience stores. There are dangerous people around. And that's where we see the first like external glimmer of that God's actually in this story. And we see it right here. She's found a well out in the desert, a spring. It says the angel of the Lord. It's very interesting language. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it'll say the angel of the Lord, then it'll say God, and it's just kind of this interesting um, interplay of words. But it says an angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, the angel did, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Where do we see this first kind of redemptive glimmer? We see it in the word found, that God is searching for her. This stranger, this wanderer, this the lowest on the totem pole slave from Egypt. She's not a part of the chosen people and all of that thing, but God goes in search of her. Now, I thought I would cut this part, but I, I feel like I, I need to say this part. Abraham did not go in search of her. Sarah did not go in search of her. They are God's chosen people. God went in search of her. There are people in your life and in my life that are Christians. They love God and they will solely disappoint you. They will not do the things of God. In fact, sometimes they will do the contrary of it. And the temptation is to say, well, that must reflect who God is. How many of us have had Christian parents who did things that hurt us or abandoned us? And now we think that this is, must be who God is. No. Again, what I love and what's, what I struggle with in the Bible is all these heroes of the faith, they are so human in their frailty, in their brokenness, mixed in there with all this great faith. So if I'm Hagar in this moment, and I've been hearing about Yahweh, I've been hearing about the one living God, and I'm being mistreated to say the least, I'm tempted to think that must be who their God is. And I love that in this moment, God says, no, I'm gonna show you who I am. I'm gonna show you my heart for you. I'm gonna show you that you matter and your child matters. And then he asks her to do a really hard thing. Really, really hard. Look with me here. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. I want that story to take a totally different turn. Do you? 
I, I, I want God to say, let's, let's introduce you to another family that will treat you well. Let's bring some Bedouin travelers to come alongside and care for you. Let's, I, I, I don't know what, but this idea of going back to where she has been mistreated can be a really dangerous thing, right? I mean, we'd never say that in a domestic violence situation, right? And if anyone would try to say something like that, we'd just go time out, time out, time out. See, in, in interpreting the Bible, what's called hermeneutics, there's this principle which is called historical exception. It goes like this. If crap happens in the Bible, doesn't mean it needs to happen to you. Let me say that again. If crap happens in the Bible, it doesn't mean that you should go do crap or that it should happen to you. Don't take a historical moment that the Bible in all of its beautiful honesty is capturing and say, well, then God must, right? Does that make sense? Do I need to explain that anymore, right? So God's not, like this is just one moment in time that we can't extrapolate to maybe your moment or my moment. The Bible would have to be a lot more clear on that circumstance. Now, here's the thing I want to do, but we can't. I want to try and explain to you why God would tell Hagar to go back. Everything within me as a teacher wants to give apology for it. You know what I mean? I, I, want, I want to give you speculation and conjecture as to why God and his benevolent plan would tell this maidservant to go back to where she's being abused. And I, I just can't. That there, there's theories. And I could offer them to you. And they might kind of like go, okay, well, well maybe, but, here, but here's the deal. This is just one of those moments where the sovereignty of God just collide with our human experience and the dissonance in between. Just his sovereignty of going, okay, I believe, I trust, I know that you're good, I know that you're trustworthy, God, but in this moment, there's just, there's just so much here that can't be resolved. I wanna ask why, if I'm Hagar, why would you, uh, why, why would you have me be born in a, a low Egyptian family such that I would actually be a slave to the Pharaoh, ultimately a slave to these foreigners where my name is stranger? Why? Why would I be mistreated? Why would I be forced into marriage to this man where I had no choice? Like just, and and for, for all our attempts to try to tidy up this passage, here's what I think the danger is. The danger is that you and I, we all have our own why. Don't we? Some of us right now, we're carrying a why. And there can sometimes be answers in the midst of that. There can be helpful handles to hold on to. I mean, why was he taken from me so early? Why the miscarriage? Why my infertility? Why was I abandoned as a child? Why was my dad an alcoholic? Why did I have to make that decision? Why the divorce of my parents? I mean, we all have this humongous why. And I believe God can meet us in that place of pain. I believe God can offer us perspective in that place. But so many of us will have to take our whys like crosses to Calvary that we won't get a full, complete, satisfying answer until kingdom come, until the day of resurrection. And to try to just make it tidy, actually I think 
can dismiss the why that you have in your heart. I believe you need to ask it. I believe you need people around you to process it. I believe you need to pray into it. But to try to fit it in this box does a disservice to you. It invalidates your pain. And I believe God meets you in the midst of it. So when I'm with somebody who's suffering and they look with me with just blazing red eyes and they say, Dan, why has this happened? I just keep my mouth shut. I just pray. I want you to hear from somebody. Her name is Cindy Jerome. Her pain is excruciating. You'll, you'll get to hear about it in a moment. You'll also see a, just a glimmer of God meeting her through the persistent I don't know if I'll ever get an answer why I'm having to go through this. Let's take a look. Feeling that you've always been the lucky one in life and then to um, realize that you're not. Realize that what you thought you had in a relationship wasn't special. Um, in your marriage and that you believed in. And so when that fell apart, you know, um, the kids were definitely damaged. They were old enough to know what was going on, my son especially. Reese had um, surgeries, uh, shoulder surgeries, and he was on his, he was to have his fourth shoulder surgery um, the Wednesday after he died on a Saturday. And he lived with me at the time because he was recouping and also recouping from the prior surgeries. That meant medication. That meant oxycotton. That meant Xanax prescribed. So after years, three years of those medications, and we all know what's going on with opioids now, um, he had an overdose. He just didn't wake up. I went downstairs to wake him up. And he just didn't wake up. So, I don't know how you come back from that. I don't know why this, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know how it could be so bad. Um, I don't know where you went, I mean. That's someone sitting in the deep way who doesn't need cookie cutter answers, who doesn't need a theologian to come frame it in for him more than likely but she needs a friend to sit with her. Be okay with her why, the why that won't ever go away. I said there was a glimmer of hope in that and actually I forgot, that's the next video which is next week. <laughs> in Cindy's story we're gonna hear throughout our Easter experience because it's a redemptive one, it's not an easy one, but it speaks to an empty grave. And for Hagar, in this moment, she goes back 
to Abraham and Sarah. And there's promise. The angel of the Lord offers a, a promise to her. We won't look at it for the sake of time. And that promise speaks of so much going on on, on the world scale. And I'm sorry, I, I told you we'd go there. We're out of time to do that. And God has this promise that leads to the fruition of a plan. But I just want to pause for this moment. By the way, the child she's bearing, her, his name is Ishmael. And just as a little teaser, I encourage you, you can go to Genesis 21 and read more about him. 16, chapter 16 and 21. Because Ishmael and his clan become the ancestors of Muhammad and the nation of Islam and most of the Arab people. And what God says about them and the way God actually blesses Ishmael is fascinating. So I'll let you go look, look that up. Ishmael means hears. It means God hears. In, in, the, the, in the literal text, it's God hears your, um, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the word offhand, but it's God hears your pain, misery. God hears your misery. And you see this progression, don't you? By the way, I want to ask the band to come out. They're going to play a song for us uh, that's been really meaningful for me. But God hears your misery. God has found her in the desert. And then Hagar, in this encounter, goes, oh my gosh, I'm a stranger, I'm a wanderer, but God, you see me, and I, want, I do want you to look with me here. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Could you imagine what that would have felt like to her? The living God. She literally took the, the, the well, the spring that she was by, and she called it Be'er, La'ai, Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and, and Bered. And it means that, that the well is named, I have now seen the one who sees me. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 year old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. You see this progression from God finds you. He goes in search of you. You matter to him, to God hears you, your deepest misery, to God sees you. And Elise and I, we, we have a, a dear friend um, as a part of our family who has lost all of her grandparents. She's single, she's in her uh, young 30s. She's lost her father about 11 or 12 years ago and just in the last two years, she lost her mom just to a painful, excruciating bone infection. And she was sharing with us around a family meal that this is her favorite story. And so I asked her, her name's Stacy. I said, Stacy, tell me why Hagar's your favorite story. And I thought it would be because God sees me and that's all I need. And you know what she said instead? She goes, I love that I've been found by him. I love that I've been heard by him. I love that I've been seen by him, but I want him to do something. And I think many of us are there right now. What do you do? When you know God sees you, but you can't see him. I just want to give you three things. 
They are all true. They are all simple. They are all hard. And they are all unsatisfying. But they're right. Number one, find a well and sit by it. God meets you in these places. He comes alongside you in these places. He finds you in these places. He may not make sense of it all, but he has put springs of water. He has put wells of refreshment of care. So find those wells because they're there. They're there. Anyone who has had the eyes to see that I've walked through with tragedy or observed, they have had the eyes to see the wells and they cling to them for all they're worth. Find a well and cling to it. Secondly, practice the daily, simple art of faithfulness. For Stacy, she said, that's what it meant when, for me to submit and go back to, for Hagar to go back to her mistress. For me, that just means I'm going to stand in this place. I'm going to stand in my pain. I'm going to sit by the wells God has placed me. And just every day, I'm going to choose to be grateful for the little things and faithful in the hard things. And each day remains hard and each day gets easier. And then I asked Stacy, what else do you do? And she said, I borrow the faith of others. I borrow the faith of others. Jesus says all we need is a mustard seed and sometimes, you know, like the smallest seed of all of faith just to kind of like survive and cling, cling on and sometimes you're not even sure you have that. And this is why we need one another. This is why we need one another. This is why you cannot walk through this alone. To borrow the faith of others. Diedrich Bonhoeffer has this great phrase. He says, sometimes the Christ in a brother is stronger than the Christ in me. And so you might even need to say it out loud to somebody. I don't have a lot of faith right now. Can I have yours? Because you don't walk alone in this journey. And if you're not in this place, if right now you can see God and you can see him moving and you're not in the place of pain and you're not asking why, I've got three things for you. Number one, be a well and let others sit by you. Be a well because there are hurting people all around you. Number two, it's the same. Practice a daily simple faithfulness. Grateful and faithful. And number three, leverage your faith for others. You might have a friend right now in your life. They can't see God. They can't hear God. They don't think they've been found by God. And you can just say, that's okay, I'll be with you. You can have my faith for a while. You might even want to create it like a Give them like your, I don't know, handkerchief or something. Just go, here, hold on to this. Hold on to me. Write it out. Here's my faith. I'm I'm bestowing it to you. Like give them something really concrete that they can see. To hold on until, until that day. And as that day happens and unfolds in their life, where as we'll see for Cindy and as we're seeing for our friend Stacy, the faithfulness of God who will, just like for Abraham and Sarah, 
just like for everyone that's ever set their eyes upon him. He'll do it again, and he'll do it again, and he'll do it again. It'll be different, it'll be unpredictable, it will not be without pain, but he'll do it again, and he'll do it again. And that's the song we're gonna sing here in a moment. I'm gonna ask you, just stay seated. We're just gonna go a couple few minutes longer than normal. But I know for me, I've just been asking this, this song to be true for us as a people of Heartland. And so many of us need to know that his faithfulness is always true in the midst of it all. And we're asking him to move mountains in our life and in our world. And so Father, we just pray for each one of us walking through what we are sojourning in, where we are in the desert right now. We're gonna look back to the times where we have seen you and we've seen your faithfulness and we're gonna leverage that time for ourselves and for others who don't have it here in this room or outside of this room. We're gonna leverage our faith for others as we say, do it again, oh God. Uniquely, personally, and specifically, do it again, oh God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's sing.